You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be in verse, uh, verse 19 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. You can follow along as I read. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. So we are at the age in our family where we read lots of books, and we read particularly lots of children's books. Now, I know maybe you have fond, maybe you're in this season of life with us, but maybe you have fond recollection of reading some of these great children's novels over the years, and we've got kind of an ongoing observation in our home, indeed an ongoing gag, that every good children's book begins with an orphan. Isn't it fascinating how every story, every good story begins with some sort of orphan. It's almost like we relish in the tragedies of these young folks that find themselves without parents lost in the world. And it's interesting that the sheer volume of these stories of an orphan-maimed character, I think, tells us something about what we most deeply long for. These stories have a way of tapping into our deepest desires, and it's interesting, you can see this not only in children's literature, but, but in all sorts of genres of art and literature and story, uh, there's this whole narrative that's repeated so frequently of how an orphan goes from being alone and isolated to somehow over the course of the plot, finding a new sort of family. Whether it's a classic book like Cinderella, or Mowgli from the the Jungle Book, or whether it's more modern tales and stories like Harry Potter or Grogu, better known as Baby Yoda, right? There's something about these stories of an orphan finding a family that, that moves us and strikes deep within our hearts because we know that Cinderella finds her prince, Mowgli finds a human tribe. Harry Potter finds Ron and Hermione. And of course, Grogu finds the Mandalorian. So these stories have a way of stirring within us a longing for home as something we sense that we lack, a family that we do not have, a country we have yet to visit. And I think these sorts of stories reflect the, the feeling of aimlessness that we have in this fallen world. Sin is a ravager, isn't it? Perhaps you have seen how sin rips apart relationships even in your own life. How sin can tear up a marriage. How sin can lead fathers and mothers to abuse their sons and daughters. How sin can lead to the betrayal and the stabbing of the back of a best friend. How sin can put a feud between brothers and sisters who don't speak to one another. 
You see, the wreckage of sin and the human casualties it leaves behind leaves us all feeling fractured and splintered away from one another. And so these stories that tap into our longing for family and friendship, I think it gives voice to something that we all intuitively know, this universal groaning we feel in this fallen world. But all the great stories of orphans and the finding of families, I think, point us to the ultimate story, the true story of the Bible. Because as we've seen from Ephesians, God is the gracious father who adopts us into his family. And not only are we adopted into his family, but we are united together with our fellow redeemed brothers and sisters into a new sort of household, a new sort of community, a new sort of family. So as we continue in Ephesians, we're going to see exactly that, how God takes us as orphans, he adopts us into his family, and he puts us in this new community. So we've seen in Ephesians that God saves individuals. By grace, you have been saved through faith. But we've also seen in Ephesians 2 how God saves us as a people. As our text says, you are members of the household of God. There's an individual aspect to the work of the gospel in saving individual sinners. There's also this corporate identity that God is saving a people. He's creating a new sort of family for his glory. So in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, Paul is going to describe how God unites his church together in Christ. And as he does so, Paul mixes three metaphors, which he's infamously known to do, right? Mixing these metaphors up. And he takes these three metaphors, these three images to describe the nature of what God is doing in the formation of the church. The church is a new country. It's a new family. It's a new temple. Those are the three images, a new country, a new family, a new temple. Let's, let's think, think through this tax passage more carefully together. Let's first begin by thinking of the church as a new home, a new home. The gospel makes us family. We see this in verse 19. So before Jesus came into the world, we have seen already in Ephesians 2 that the world was divided along racial lines between Jew and Gentile. Earlier in chapter 2, Paul talks about how the Gentiles were separated from Christ, alienated from Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. But as Jesus has come into the world to save sinners, Jesus is reconciling us to God and also reconciling us to one another as a new humanity. Look at what he says in verse 15. Remember, Jesus had created in himself one man in place of the two, so making peace. So Paul continues the same idea in verse 19 as he describes that because of Jesus, we are now no longer strangers and aliens. We were strangers and aliens, but now no longer because of Jesus. Once we didn't know each other, once we were strangers, and before Jesus, we didn't trust one another. 
We were aliens or foreigners. We were segregated from one another, sequestered away and isolated in our tribes. But those who are made alive in Christ, that is no longer the reality for the church. We are no longer strangers and aliens. We're no longer at enmity with one another. But Paul says in the church, look at what he says in verse 19, we are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Here, Paul introduces quite quickly in the same sentence, two different visual images, two metaphor. Paul introduces the metaphor of the church as a new country or fellow citizens and the church as a new family. We are members of the household of God. So the church in so many ways becomes a new home for us, a new community for us. So patriotism tends to run quite deeply in our bones for all people. Whether you are a native citizen of these here United States or whether you are a native citizen of Brazil, there's something about hearing your country's national anthem that just causes you to to swell up with pride and gratitude for your homeland, wherever your homeland may be. Our earthly citizenship is a sort of family, if you will. Patriotism, after all, means fatherland, stemming from the word father in both Greek and Latin. So we call it a homeland for a reason, because we think of our country as a sort of home. But Paul says that the gospel gives us a new sort of home, a better home, a new citizenship. So while we still remain earthly citizens of a nation here on the earth, our identity is now with Christ and with his people. We are fellow citizens with the saints Our identity is with God's people now. And this is huge for us to remember because what unites the church is not her ethnicity or her nationality, but what unites us together is Christ. And we often talk about the American church or the Chinese church, but I'm not sure that's the best way to talk about it. I think it's more accurate to say the church in America or the church in China. Why is that? Because the church should not have any national adjective before her name. Put bluntly, there's no such thing as an American church or a Chinese church. There's just the church. Paul talks about this in Philippians, right? But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul wants the Philippians to see, and indeed the Ephesians here, that our identity, our citizenship, is ultimately in heaven. We are new citizens together in Christ. We have a new nationality that supersedes our earthly nationality. So not only is the church a new home country, Paul says, a new citizenship, if you will, but the church is also a new family. Look at what the text says in verse 19. We are members of the household of God. Members of the household of God. God has adopted us into his home through Jesus Christ. And so therefore the church is a family, a family. We call each other brother and sister. Not because it's cute, but because it actually reflects a spiritual reality wrought by the gospel itself. Like our earthly citizenship, our blood family is indeed superseded by our new identity in God's family. Remember when Jesus' mothers and brothers came looking for him? 
Jesus answered this. He said, who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked around and the disciples gathered and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You see, the church is a sort of family that in many ways trumps even our own individual families, right? We have in the church spiritual mothers and fathers. We have brothers and sisters. And by God's grace, through the Lord Jesus Christ, we are brought into this family. We are members of this family. And what a privilege it is to belong to the family of God, the household of God. Maybe you're here this morning and you sense that aimlessness and isolation that we have all felt in this world at different points. And maybe even this morning, you feel a little bit like a stranger and an alien in this world. And as you look at your life, you may feel like a citizen without a country, a child without a family. Perhaps you don't have many close friendships in your life. Maybe you're isolated, alone, and lonely. Sin severs our relationships. It breaks down trust between people. But today, as you look around you, God has made available to you, even today, in Christ, a new and better country, a new and better family. Because Christ has indeed risen from the grave, and by his power, he is bringing forth, by his power, a new humanity called the church. And the church is a gathering of redeemed sinners saved by the blood of Christ. And God, through the cross, through the resurrection, is making us a family together. So if you're isolated and lonely and dejected, how do you become a part of this household of God? How do I become a member of it? How do I become a part of this family? And the answer is really quite simple. Through Christ. Through Christ. Go to him. Humble yourself before Jesus, ask for forgiveness of your sins, and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Because as you repent and put your faith in Christ, Christ will unite you to himself. His payment of sin will be applied to you. You will be made clean and righteous because of the death of Christ, and you will be united to his body and united to his family called the church. So I urge you, Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and so be saved and so be brought into the family of God. And if you are a Christian without a church, have you ever thought about how unnatural and strange that notion is to be a Christian without a church? Because if we understand the gospel that Paul is preaching to us here, If we understand how the gospel is not only the salvation of individuals, but the gathering of a community, a household, then the notion of a churchless Christian should seem absurd to us. How can you be a, how can you be in Christ and not a member of his family? But how can you be in Christ and not regularly gather with a spiritual family? So if you profess Christ, let me urge you to find a local church where your family ties in Christ become actual, not merely theoretical. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my my disciples. If you have love 
for one another. And how will the world recognize you as a disciple of Christ if you do not gather and love his church? And if you have no local church, no faith family, no community of saints to belong to, then of course you always have an open invitation here, friend. A new home, a new country is exactly what the gospel is doing. And the local church, the local church is one of the great benefits that God has given us in Christ, that we are not alone, that we are connected to one another in Christ, that we belong, that we can have a community of people who love us, who care for us, even as we love and as we care for them. That by God's grace, we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are united together as the people of Christ. And what a wonderful gift it is to belong to the church of God. And let me urge you, church, if you are in the family of God. Let me urge you to lean into that family. Sin and troubles and discouragements, they can often lead to isolation. That's what sin does. It severs us, severs us and, and secludes us from the body of Christ. And perhaps you've experienced this in your own life. Maybe you've had seasons of doubt and struggles discouragement and pain and grief, hidden sin and temptation, discontentment, and on and on it goes. We all face these seasons in our lives. And if you are facing such a season, let me encourage you to go to your family who loves you and who longs to help you in your time of need. A good family, and the church is the best family in the world, a good family drops whatever it needs to tend to the, the family member who's in a crisis, don't they? I may be busy in my study at home working on the, the next great sermon, right? And thinking through and praying and, and thinking through how I can serve the body. But if one of my children come into my study and say, Daddy, I need to talk to you right now, you better believe I'll drop whatever I'm doing and devote to that child my full attention. And so it is with the church. That if you, as a member of this body, if you go up to a spiritual father, like an elder, or if you go to a spiritual mother, like many of the godly women in our church, and they will gladly lend you your ear if you need it. They will gladly point you to God's word. They will gladly encourage you and strengthen you in the faith. So let me ask you, have you ever gone up to a fellow church member, maybe after a community group or even spoken to an elder after worship, and have you ever said, you know, I'm, I'm struggling. Can you help me? Can you pray for me? Can you talk to me about what's going on in my life? If not, if you've never done that, then you have yet to realize the incredible blessing of what it means to be a part of a spiritual family. Our love for one another is not expressed by oblivious indifference to each other's needs, but by rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. You see, as covenant members of this church body, let us not only display the sort of family produced by the gospel, but may we enjoy the many blessings and comforts and encouragements that the God has given us in this spiritual family. And so Paul continues to elaborate. He moves on from these two initial images of citizenship and family, and he takes us to a third and more extensive metaphor, starting in verse 20, as he describes the church as a construction project, particularly a new temple for the dwelling place of God. And a new temple first needs a new foundation. And that leads secondly to a new foundation. The Bible makes us secure. 
So Paul pivots to another metaphor, this one, a construction project metaphor, describing the church's foundation. Look at what Paul says in verse 20. He says, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, as we look at verse 20, maybe the first question we might ask about this verse is, who are the apostles and prophets? Now, the apostles and prophets in this text refers to the teaching of the church. Those who hold the apostolic office in the first century, like Paul, were the authoritative men that God had put in place to establish the church's doctrine and teaching. Now, what do prophets refer to in this text? Do they refer to the Old Testament prophets or to the church's first century prophets in Paul's day who brought the gospel to others? I think Paul most likely here is referring to New Testament prophets, not Old Testament prophets, particularly since apostles and prophets in the text share a single article and apostles precedes prophets. So figuring out the role of the prophets in the early church is a bit complex, but whatever they spoke, it was always in conjunction and in unity with the doctrine of the gospel as taught and handed down by the apostles. Paul will actually mention the apostles and prophets later in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up the body of Christ. So it is the teaching of the gospel that provides the firm foundation for the church. So let me ask you the question then, what is the authoritative record of the apostles' teaching that we have today? It's the only inerrant and infallible word of God. The Bible alone for the church is the final authority in the congregation. John Stott put it this way. He said, the church stands or falls by its loyal dependence on the foundation truths which God revealed to his apostles and prophets, which are now preserved in the New Testament scriptures. So the apostles and prophets, the, their teaching ministry in that first century are now handed down to us in God's inerrant authoritative word. So the local church must be built upon the authority of the word of God. And any church not built upon the foundation of the scriptures is a church built upon the doomed sea. The parable of Christ at the end of the Sermon on the Mount comes to mind. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock, on the rock. The fool who does not listen to the words of Jesus, what does he do? He builds his house on the sand. And when the onslaught of the harsh weather inevitably comes, the house built on the sand will collapse. And so it will be for any church built upon the sands of shifting human opinion. That as the headwinds of culture inevitably comes, the house that is built upon the sand will collapse and fall. And as the headwinds of culture beats against the church, we see this that it is only upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles that the church can have a sure foundation, the apostolic gospel rightly preached and rightly divided. But the cornerstone of this new community, Paul says, is Jesus himself. 
The backdrop for this language of cornerstone actually comes from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. When the prophet anticipated the coming of Christ, here's what Isaiah says. Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. So it's interesting in the Greek, the word cornerstone can also mean capstone, which could refer to the stone to finish off the building, if you will. And something that might be what Paul means here, particularly as he highlights how Jesus is the head of the church in Ephesians. But I think the better sense here is to refer and to understand it as Jesus being the cornerstone. Particularly, it makes sense here in this context, as Paul is speaking of laying the foundation of the temple. So what was the cornerstone in that first century construction and architecture? Well, the cornerstone provided the crucial brick, the initial brick of foundation by which all the other stones in the foundation were laid. So the cornerstone provided the plumb line from which the walls of the structure were to be built. It was the first and indeed most important stone to be placed because cornerstones were load-bearing. They were stones that indeed determined the contours and boundaries of the building. Everything in the building was built on top of and around the cornerstone. And it ensured that the building would be square and stable and last for decades to come. So the first and most important step in construction in the first century meant that you had to carefully place that cornerstone. And it is God's own son who is the cornerstone of the new temple that God is building. As Jesus tells the the parable of the wicked tenants in Mark chapter 12, you might remember this. God had a vineyard. He had some servants to take care for it from him while he was away. And these wicked tenants failed to give the Lord the fruit of the vineyard that he is due. And every time the Lord sends a servant, they beat up the servant, send him back empty-handed. The vineyard owner finally sends his son as a messenger, thinking that now they'll respect my son. And of course, the vineyard owners decide, hey, let's kill the son and take the vineyard for ourselves. And Jesus, as he tells that parable about the religious leaders of Israel, he quotes from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You see, Jesus was rejected by the world. Indeed, he was rejected by his own people. But yet the Lord, in his wisdom, has established Christ as the cornerstone of the church. The entire kingdom of God is built upon him. And even though he would be arrested and crucified unjustly at the hands of murderous men, the father chose his son to be the one, the cornerstone of the church. God accomplished his great and glorious plan of redemption by laying the cornerstone of Christ himself in the bloody soil of Golgotha's hill. And the church, therefore, must, must be centered upon Christ, the cornerstone. It's it's so easy, isn't it, to build a church on another foundation? And sometimes we don't even realize that we've replaced it. We're so obtuse and oblivious that churches can quite easily swap out Christ for the cornerstone and put some other special interest in its place. Some choose to build their church on some sort of common ethnic identity, thinking that what binds them together is their own skin color and their own culture. And so they wall themselves off from anybody that looks and acts differently than them, treating them as unwelcome. What a shame that is. 
Even here in Ephesians 2, Paul is telling us that the gospel is tearing down the dividing wall of hostility among the peoples of the earth. Racial racial reconciliation must begin with the people of God, and it starts in the assembly of the saints called the church. Some can choose to build the church on a foundation of common political interests. Isn't this so sadly common? That the church begins to shift away its foundation from Christ into political hobbies and activism. They begin to replace the worship of Christ with the worship of country. And idolatrous nationalism can begin to define the church as people latch on to a particular political party as they consume themselves with this sort of political activism. You see, though the gospel has political implications, the church so often acts like Esau, turning in their birthright for a bowl of political and cultural expediency. Some choose to build the church upon social interests, don't they? And they turn the church into their own sort of country club of large clique of people that they like to hang out with. And so the church busies themselves with activities and events and fellowships, so much so that they begin to turn inward, ignoring the great need of their community and the world, and indeed stopping to build up one another. So the church functionally becomes much more like a shopping vault of events and programs to cater to Christian consumers whose only aim is to make everybody comfortable and happy and to keep the money coming in. Some choose to, to build the church upon their traditions, And so the church becomes about preserving a cultural moment in time, usually the 1950s, right? And the church idolizes the past, right? They always dream of the way things used to be. They're always trying to go back to this mythical uh, era in the past, and they begin to confuse their traditions with the gospel themselves, thereby growing cold to the gospel and distancing themselves from the culture and generation that the Lord has called them to reach, You see, the list of false foundations can go on and on and on. Perhaps you can come up with a few more. But it's the tendency of the church that we must be aware of here. Because of our sinful hearts, because of our proclivity to temptation, every church can begin to drift away from its true foundation of Christ Jesus, the cornerstone. Over the years, every church can find themselves beginning to forget their first love. And before long, the boiling zeal of the church for Christ will settle into this tepid and lukewarm routine. That's not good for anything. So much so that the Lord Jesus says, I will spit you out of my mouth. This pattern recurs through every generation. Every generation, as the churches begin to replace the foundation of Christ with something else, it leads to the destruction and ruin of those churches. And it's the reason why Jesus is happy to let so many churches die, and why so many new churches need to be planted. But this is not just a problem for other churches. It's a problem for Redemption Church as well. It's a problem for us. You and I, we have that same tendency, that same temptation we will face and we will feel, that because our own hearts are corrupted by sin, we can slowly begin to drift away from the one foundation that is Christ Jesus. Our sin is almost like a river slowly eroding the shores of our banks. And so this propensity that we have towards idolatry, towards hard-heartedness, towards spiritual blindness, it should cause all of us as a church family to carefully examine our own hearts, to do so regularly and often, lest our sin goes unchecked and begins to erode the foundation of Christ. 
usually when you build a house, you build the foundation, and then you usually tend to ignore it until, unless something goes wrong. That's what we do. I mean, think about it. When was the last time you climbed under your crawl space just to check on your foundation, just for fun, right? Most of us don't do that on any sort of regular basis. But if we have that sort of mindset in the church, ignoring the foundation, neglecting the foundation, refusing to check the foundation, it will eventually bring spiritual ruin upon us. We must ensure that we as a congregation have not drifted away from our cornerstone. And when we identify even the subtlest shift or drift away from Christ, we have to constantly recalibrate and reposition ourselves yet again upon Christ, the cornerstone. It is on Christ, the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And so we build ourselves upon the authority of God's word, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That is the foundation for God's new community. But the foundation is important to be laid so that this new temple can be built upon it. And that's the third thing we see in our text today, this new temple, how the triune God makes us one. We see this in verse 21 through 22. So the cornerstone of Christ is laid for God to build, to assemble a holy temple in the Lord, the text says. So if Christ is the cornerstone, and if the apostle and the prophets are the rest of that foundation, we as members of the church, who are we? We are the bricks stacked on top of each other, joined together to make the structure of God's new temple. Paul stresses the whole construction enterprise happens in Christ. Look at verse 21 through 22. Follow along. In whom, Paul says, in whom, in Christ, right? In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, Who's that? In Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Notice the importance of those little prepositional phrases, in whom, in him. The temple of God is only possible because of Jesus, because of his life, because of his death, because of his resurrection. So as the church joins together, the church grows by God's grace in both strength and size. It grows in strength. We are being joined together. The church is the place by which God strengthens his people. As one commentator put it, people are fitted into and transformed in the church. You see, as we are bound to Christ And as we are brought to his people, our bonds in Jesus ought to become stronger over time. The Christians in the local church should be growing and maturing. You should be more mature in Christ today than you were when you first attended Redemption Church or whatever church you went to before. We should be growing and maturing. And so over time, we should have and see evident an increased love for one another. We should exhibit more consistent holiness in our conduct when it comes to our community. We should be more zealous over time to sacrifice everything for Christ and for his people. So if you are a member of Redemption Church, I hope you have seen this in your own heart and in life. 
That you have seen how Christ has not only joined us together, giving us a deeper and sweeter sense of unity, but he's also maturing us and strengthening us together. But Christ is not only making his church stronger, joining us together, he is also adding to our number. The church, it says, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. It grows expanding. The cornerstone, of course, was laid at Jesus' death and resurrection. The teaching of the apostles and prophets was, was laid for us at Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. But since then, the church has continued to grow all over the world. That God is laying bricks to build this temple from every tribe, language, and nation. They're all being put together in Christ and by Christ, creating this beautiful temple for the Lord. And as Christ builds his holy temple called the church, he is saving sinners and he is incorporating them into his architectural design. Jesus saves sinners. Yes and amen. But he also joins them and unites them and brings them into his people. And they are bound together, not with mortar and cement, but the very spirit of Christ himself. And so the church grows in strength. It grows in size as the master architect sees his plan realized, culminating in the full ingathering of his church that will be complete at the end of the age. The, the, the word for temple that Paul uses in verse 20, naos, refers to the inner sanctum of the holy of holies, the most inner part, the most sacred part of the temple where God's presence dwelt thickest. You see, one of the things that Paul is saying here is quite astonishing. Paul is pointing to the reality that the church is this new temple, this new holy of holies, that the church is the place of God's presence in the world. The temple has been destroyed. 70 AD, it's gone, hadn't been rebuilt. Paul is stressing here that this new temple is far better than the old one because God's presence now lives and dwells among his people. Because the, the temple that God is building now in Christ is not a temple made of gold and marble, but of redeemed flesh and blood. That's the temple God's making. So for the Ephesians, this metaphor of the church being a new temple for God's glorious presence, that would have amazed them, and you better believe it would have encouraged them. The city of Ephesus was best known in the ancient world for the great temple of Artemis. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Remember the rallying cry of the Ephesians when, when Paul was getting there? They loved that temple. But yet, as Paul is pointing out, the temple of Artemis may be great. People from all over come to see it, to worship this pagan goddess. But Paul says, guess what? As great as that temple might look and appear, it's nothing. God's presence isn't in that temple. It's not in the temple of Artemis. It's in the assembly of the saints called the church. And as you're gathered from house to house, scattered in these unknown places all across Asia Minor, Paul says, the presence of God is there among you. God is there. When the church gathers, there is Christ with his church. So, so look around. People sometimes ask the question, where is God in this world? Where can we find him? Where is he? Where can I come into God's presence? And the answer is right here. Right now, in this very moment, the church of Christ is gathered in this room. And not only here, 
but around this city and around this world as the saints of the Lord Jesus Christ, a symbol for worship. And as these churches assemble together to worship the risen Christ, so is there the presence of Jesus among them. Wherever a true church exists, there is God's presence with his people. That the church makes the invisible kingdom of God visible on Sunday morning. And the work of redemption that God is doing and this construction of this temple, this is a work, not that I've done, not that you've done. This is a work of the triune God. God is building it. The the construction project is not yet complete. It is ongoing. We are being joined together. We are being built up together. But notice the, the mention in verse 22 of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Look at what the text says in verse 22. In him, the Son, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, the Father, by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Do you, do you catch that? That Paul is emphasizing this grand new temple that God is building, this new community, this new humanity, this new church that God is building. It is being built as a temple in Christ for the Father by the Spirit, the triune God, whose great aim is to make his glory and presence known in the world through the redemption of his people. You see, we are a new country called the kingdom of God. We are a new family called the household of God. We are a temple being built for the glory of God. And so the resurrection of Christ unleashes God's spiritual power to save sinners like us, but then to bring us together as a church for his glory. So God's purpose is to save a people for his own possession. And what a joy it is to be a part of this new humanity, this new community, this one holy apostolic church. One day with the saints, those of us in Christ will sing, not just with the saints of Redemption Church, but we will sing with all the saints gathered before Christ throughout all the ages. And one day the construction project of the new temple will be complete. We will be together, the redeemed of all the ages, and we will be with our risen Savior. So church, Let me urge you to cherish Jesus today. May we live our lives together in light of these gospel realities that we are a new family, a new community, a new temple, a new citizenship. And so the place that where God's power and presence are most visible, most made known, most manifest in this world is in the gathering of the church. So we do all that we can to proclaim Christ, to worship Christ, And so may we work together to increase our commitment to live out our faith with our fellow citizens of heaven, with a local church family of brothers and sisters. And may we build each other up week after week, day by day, month by month. May we build each other up by the Spirit as we seek to proclaim this gospel to the world so that as the gospel goes forth, as God saves, as he adds new bricks to our numbers, that brick by brick, person by person, soul by soul, child by child, that the temple of God would grow and that the whole earth would be filled with the glory of the risen Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we recognize that before the gospel, before your coming, before your death and resurrection, that we were strangers and aliens. 
You were alone, isolated, secluded, devastated. But Lord, help us to recognize that one of the great benefits of your great work of redemption is not only the salvation of our souls from hell, but Lord, you have also brought us together with your people. You are making us a a new country, a new family, a new temple for your glory. So Lord, I pray that as you continue to work around the world, as your gospel goes forth, we pray that you would add to your number in the church. And we pray that the church of Christ would be strengthened. And Lord, we pray that you would help us as Redemption Church to live out these new realities together, to be one new man in the place of the two, to love one another, to be committed to one another for our spiritual good and for your glory. And Lord, may you use us as a church family to build up the church of Christ, that we might proclaim the gospel. And Lord, that you might be further glorified as your church expands and grows into Christ. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.